Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, it is my privilege to share with you this morning. And uh, let me start by praying, and then we can, we can jump right in. Our God, we bring our hearts before you as we reflect and celebrate the death of Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen and inspire our faith this morning. God, that we would, in such a fresh way, believe and trust in the death of Jesus, in what he's accomplished. And so I pray for myself, God, that you would give me the grace to speak with clarity, with conviction, with sincerity, and with urgency. And I pray, God, that we would all together be encouraged. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I, I really am trusting um, this morning that, that what God has impressed on my heart to share with us, what God has impressed on my heart out of um, Mark chapter 15 will encourage you, that it will challenge you, that it will inspire you. I am praying that all of us, myself included, would feel the gravity of what Good Friday means, but also that we would know the goodness of this day, the goodness of God. See, I'm a, I'm a believer in, in not taking ourselves too seriously, and yet there are times in our lives that really call for us to know and feel the weight of them. There are times where we need to, to embrace the seriousness that is appropriate, to not be jovial. And today is one of those times. There is an appropriate gravity to this message, and I encourage you this morning, lean into that. Lean into that. We can find it so awkward when something becomes weighty, when something gets real. And yet the reality of the cross of Jesus is something that is deserving of us to lean into the gravity and weight of what it is and the message. Let us not shy away from what is hard to hear at times because it actually has the power to change us. I'm trusting the promise this morning where Paul says that faith comes through hearing and hearing the message, the word of Christ. And so I'm praying with faith that the existing faith of those listening, listening would be strengthened and that new faith would be given. And so if you do have your Bibles, um, would you find your way to Mark chapter 15? And, and as usual, um, I like to give a roadmap so you know where you are on our journey and, uh, and quite simply, I'd like for us to read a big chunk of, of Mark chapter 15 to really take it in. And after that, I want to draw out four truths from this passage. So jump with me to Mark chapter, chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, 
And Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, hail the king of Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, is he calling Elijah? And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down will take, come to take him down. And Jesus cried, uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. See, this is hard for us to read. 
the reality of Good Friday is heavy. When we take this in, not, not being too quick to jump to the resurrection, which is so important, we are people of the resurrection. But at this point, in this moment, the resurrection is still days away and the gravity of this event is so massive. And as we hold that, hold that now, this morning, I want to pull out four truths from what we have read, which I pray again will encourage and inspire and challenge us. And the first truth is this. Barabbas exists to be an illustration of our own redemption. In verses 6 to 15 of what we've just read, we hear about this prisoner, Barabbas. And, and I've heard so many good illustrations of the gospel in my life. Having come to faith as a teenager and grown up and studied theology to become a pastor, I've heard so many good illustrations but I still feel none is so good as the illustration that we find right here in the text of Barabbas. You see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus came into the world to save us, that God entered into the world to save us. And there is no good news without Good Friday. Jesus' death is the core of the gospel. You see, in, in these verses, in this picture, we have Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth who despite all these accusations, is consistently shown to be innocent. Pilate keeps coming back and saying, what has he done? I can't see what he's done wrong to be deserving of this. He's a man who has traveled the land, helping the sick and the poor and the needy. He has performed signs and wonders and miracles for so many throughout his ministry. A man of love. And yet we have this man, Barabbas, here in this story, a man who is a violent rebel, guilty of murder, who is described as a notorious thief, a man who was so bad that Pilate thought that if he put him against Jesus, this would solve his problem. See, he didn't want to crucify Jesus. He didn't understand what was going on. And so he thought if he pitted him up against Barabbas, a notorious thief and murderer, surely they would let Jesus go free and his problem would be solved. He wouldn't have to disappoint the chief priests. But in this story, as we read, as it unfolds, the innocent is substituted in for the guilty. Barabbas gets the freedom of an innocent man and Jesus gets the death of a guilty one. I wonder if we could try and just jump into Barabbas's head and try and see through his eyes, sitting in this prison cell, surrounded by rebels, surrounded by others who you with them have been rebelling. You are notorious. You know you have killed people. You have killed someone and you are deserving of your punishment. You have been charged. You have been found guilty. And you hear this, this ruckus. You hear this, this, something's going on. There's some man named Jesus who's being charged with who knows what. He's being accused of being the king of the Jews. That's his charge. That's his wrongdoing. And you're brought forward and you're pitted against this man who's, who's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And you think, what's going on here? There's no ways I'm going to be released. My time has come. And yet this crowd in injustice 
chooses to release you so that you go free and you get the freedom and the innocence of the man who's now taken your place and is now considered guilty and is told to be crucified. Barabbas gets the freedom of an innocent man. I wonder what his life, we aren't told, but I wonder what his life would have been like after that perplexing event. And yet we are all Barabbas. We all have been found guilty. We all are deserving of judgment. Our sentence has been traded. It has been swapped for the life of one who is innocent, perfect, Jesus. We, we might pit ourselves up against Barabbas and think, well, we're, we're not quite that bad. And yet we know we've fallen short. We know that to our own standards for ourselves, we have fallen short. To the standards for those around us, we've fallen short. And to the standards of God, we have fallen short. It's not the degree of the fall. It is the fact of it. We are guilty. We are deserving. And yet, like Barabbas, we find ourselves released from that which we deserve into a life of freedom. And Jesus takes our place. He becomes our substitute to receive our punishment. And we receive his life and his freedom in return. How wonderful, how amazing is the gospel. There is no good news without Good Friday. And Good Friday tells us that Jesus takes our place and our punishment, that we might receive his life. He takes our death so that we might live. The second truth I wanted to pull out from verses 29 to 32 is that Jesus saved others by not saving himself. You see, these verses are so telling. In these verses, we see these, these, this mockery that is happening. All these people are mocking Jesus. They're seeing him there crucified, and they start to mock him. They say, save yourself. Come down from the cross. They start to mock him and say, he saved others. I mean, they know that. They've seen it. They saw how he saved people. And yet, as he sits on the cross, as, he, as he's hung, hanging on the cross, they mock him saying, well, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And they say, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They would only believe Jesus as the Christ, as the king, if he could save himself, as, he could, as, if, he, as if he would come down off the cross. Then they would see, then they would believe. You see, in these statements, we see with these people that only might and power exercised through some display of self-preserving force could prove Jesus to be the Christ and the Savior. Surely he must show a display of power to free himself, to save himself. Then we would believe. But in their ignorance and in their blindness, they could not see the power of the cross in that moment. The power of the cross that we now know. Because it's in his death that Jesus was busy saving. It's by denying himself that he rescued us. Self-denial is, is something that's not often held up as a virtue in our day. You know, consistently we are encouraged to follow our hearts as fickle as they may be, to express ourselves, 
even at the expense of others. To live our own truth as if reality were something that could be shaped and bended to fit around our own self-centered universe. We have placed ourselves at the heart of everything and it's no wonder that we're breaking under that weight. Self-preservation is considered a virtue and yet it's because of Jesus' self-denial, his sacrificial death that we are saved, that we are rescued. Jesus chooses to deny himself, being in very nature God. He chooses to deny himself for our sake, for your sake and my sake. You see, he had the power, he had the authority and the right to save himself, but he chooses denial for our sake. I remember the story in John 8 of of the woman who's caught in adultery and and she's brought before Jesus and, and in some power play, they say, surely now, you know, to be obedient to the law, we need to stone her. Surely she's deserving of her punishment. And Jesus says that famous thing, he says, let hearers without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they drop their stones and they leave because they are all with sin. What's, what's amazing about that story is that there is one person in it who has the right to throw a stone. Jesus. He's without sin. He has every right to throw the first stone and he chooses not to. He does not exercise that right. He does not exercise his authority. He shows that sacrifice for the sake of others, even his own enemies, is the most exceptional and accurate display of power. Not power by force, for self, but power of love and self-denial denying his own interests in that moment for the sake of those he loved. Jesus saved us by not saving himself. He endured our punishment right to the end. He drank every last drop of our judgment. The third thing I wanted to draw out of this passage for us is for us to notice and to celebrate that God did his greatest work in the darkest moment. Verses 33 and 34 bring this out. I really want to try my best to dive into this moment with you, this moment of history as it unfolded. Jesus has been nailed to the cross. The disciples have scattered in fear. All of his followers are perplexed and disoriented and confused. Their rabbi, their teacher, their healer, their miracle worker is nailed to a cross and he is dying. Their hope is fading away. I started to think what would it have been like to be in, in, the, in the mind, in the, in the place of Mary, his mother, who receives this, this word from an angel that her baby boy is going to save the world. And now she stands watching him die, wondering what's happening. What is going on? Peter, who's, who's, who's walked this journey with Jesus, who's walked on water with Jesus, who said, surely, Lord, you you will be our Savior. You are the Messiah. He's made the declaration. And there he sees his rabbi, his friend, dying. The eyes of the crowds that had followed Jesus and seen him perform all these wonders. And there he is, hanging on a cross, dying. They aren't at the resurrection yet. The one they thought to be the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God is 
dying. And at midday, the passage tells us that darkness descends and physically covers the whole land and it sits there for three hours. It's like God giving us a a natural indication of the darkness and gravity of the moment as Jesus slowly suffers until he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22 as an expression of anguish as divine abandonment is experienced for the first time in all eternity. Separation of eternal father from eternal son. Jesus breathes his last with a loud cry and the light of the world is snuffed out. There has never been and will never be a moment in history darker than this one. When perfection, God himself, the light of the world, is snuffed out. We know temporarily, and yet in that moment, for those who were there, this, this moment was, was so heavy and, and perplexing, and they're just sitting there going, what is happening? Why, God, why? And yet it's at this moment, oh, may we, may we be encouraged by this this morning. It's, it's at this moment, it's not beyond God's plan. It's not beyond God's purpose. It's in this moment that God is doing his best work, his greatest work. He is accomplishing salvation for the world. You see, it's when God appeared to be absent that he was busy working and doing his greatest work. It's in this darkest moment that God is busy. He's active. He's there. He's at work for their good, for our good. And in his wisdom and in his power, God brought the brightest blessing out of that dark, dark night. That dark mess. May we be encouraged by this truth. That in all of our dark moments, God is at work for our good. He is never passive in our pain. He is doing something. He is doing something. We may never fully see it until eternity, but faith is believing that just like at the cross, when everything seemed lost, God was at work. Even now today, in all of our agony and pain and concern and perplexity, we can know God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let me tell you this morning, when God seems absent in your life, He is at work for your joy if you trust him. If you trust him. The cross tells us that. The cross tells us that. God did his greatest work in the darkest moment. And finally, I want us to look at the response of that centurion soldier who stood before the cross. I want to encourage you this morning, face the cross of Christ and believe in verses 37 and 39, and even looking at, at verse 32, as we, as we look at the different responses to Jesus, the mockery, and then the response of the centurion, the soldier. You see, throughout the Gospel of Mark, he's painting for us all these examples of people who see Jesus and respond to him, see him and follow him, or see him and don't follow him. So, but, but all of them don't quite get the full picture. After Peter makes the declaration that the disciples believe he is the Christ, he tells them three times, I'm going to die, and they still don't quite get it. They still don't quite wrap their heads around, how can the Messiah, the Son of God, be handed over? This just seems like a loss. 
this seems like a loss. And then here we have this centurion soldier who would have witnessed hundreds of crucifixions standing before the cross, facing the death of Jesus. And he is moved by something in the death. He is moved by the way that Jesus dies. Something in that moment sparks faith in his heart and he declares, truly, this man was the son of God. There's no death like it because there is something in the death of Jesus that tells us he is no mere man. You see, unlike the mockers who wanted a display of force, come down from the cross, then we will see and then we will believe. The centurion sees Jesus breathe his last and goes, that man is the son of God. Undoubtedly, the resurrection is the climax of Jesus' ministry. And it is the greatest display of God's glory. But still now today, like that soldier, we can stand before Jesus' death. We can stand before his death and know he is God. We can face the cross of Christ and believe and trust. This death was pur has purchased eternal life for all who believe. And so I encourage you, face the cross of Christ and believe in Jesus whether that is for the first time in your life or as a fresh expression of your existing faith, face the cross of Jesus and believe. Do not let Good Friday pass without receiving and believing the good news that it brings. May we all this morning face the cross, knowing that Jesus has died in our place, taking our punishment and by not saving himself has purchased for us eternal life. Knowing that in that dark moment, God was accomplishing the greatest work, our salvation. May we face the cross this morning and believe. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, we bring our hearts to you who loved the world so much that you gave your only begotten son so that whoever would believe would never perish but have eternal life. As Jesus took our death to purchase our life, may we freely give ourselves to him in faith and in trust. And may every glimpse at the cross of Jesus today, tomorrow, and every day, may every glimpse at that moment inspire in our hearts fresh faith, love for you, devotion for you, and trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been wonderful to be with you this morning, and I pray that you are encouraged. If you'd uh, like to subscribe, I encourage you to do that. If you'd like to support us, there should be a button on the screen for that as well. But we encourage you to join us on Sunday as we remember again the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online wherever you are, please visit our website at www dot chiltonchurch dot org dot uk